It's great to be with you. It's great to be opening God's Word with you. So to that end, I hope you have your Bible. Let's open it. And let's turn to Acts chapter 11. Today we jump back into our series of Acts. Uh, We took a little break for Easter. Um, If you're new with us, and maybe you've only come over Easter, we've been going through the book of Acts. And when we left off in the book of Acts, we read about a watershed moment, not only in the book of Acts, but in the entire Bible. A lot of us don't think of it this way, but what we read about the Gentiles coming to faith in Acts 11 is groundbreaking, was groundbreaking for the early church. We saw how a barrier had been crossed in the Great Commission that had never been crossed before. Gentiles who were seen as unclean and unworthy by Jews were, were coming to the faith, coming and believing in the gospel and being included in the covenant community. Peter, a strict Jew, enters the home of a Gentile preaches the gospel, and the Spirit falls in a mini-Pentecost. And what had happened to Jewish believers in Acts 2, and what had happened to the Samaritans in Acts 8, was now happening to Gentiles. Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the promised Holy Spirit. And this was all in fulfillment to what Jesus talked, promised would happen in Acts 1, verses 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But as we're going to see in our text, not everybody is a fan. Not everybody is a fan that Gentiles are getting saved. And before the church could embrace the, the great commission that Jesus gave them fully, they had to deal with a big stumbling block in the way of that mission. Hear now the inspired and inerrant word of the Lord, Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and I was in a trance. I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. 
And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God then gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, would you just pray with me for a second, just as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, today, this is a probing word. This is a word that's going to challenge us. This is a word that's going to draw out some idols, draw out some hindrances in our lives that might be getting in the way of what you've called us to do. Holy Spirit, I pray now. That's not a work I can do. That's a work you do. Would you move in our hearts through your word now? Would you shape us? Would you make us look more like Jesus? That's what we want. And in his name we pray. Amen. News of what had happened to the Gentiles has now spread throughout, like wildfire, throughout the region. Not only had Samaritans now received the gospel, but Gentiles as well. But not everybody's thrilled by this, as we read. Back in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians who heard about this aren't overwhelmed with joy. Yes, for Saul of Tarsus to be saved. Wow, what a win for the church. A Pharisee, an intellectual Jew. Wow, praise God. And even for the Samaritans. We can get behind that. Praise God. You know, finally, revival has come back to Samaria. But Gentiles? Pagans? Romans? Idolaters? They're unclean. How could the Spirit of God dwell with unclean and filthy vessels such as these Gentile dogs? That was their perspective. And so when Peter returns to Jerusalem on a serious high after seeing God do something unthinkable in his mind, he is immediately confronted by a group of Jewish Christian purists. They were still zealous for the customs of Moses, for the law of God, the Jewish customs, the purity customs. And they believed that Christians were still to maintain a strict adherence to the Torah, including the purity laws that would exclude them from eating with eating unclean foods or eating with or fellowshipping with unclean Gentiles. And so they confront Peter. Peter 
What are you doing, brother? You're backsliding. You're, you're, you're eating with unclean Gentiles. Peter, what's wrong with you? You broke the law. Can't you see it? You've turned your back on the law of Moses. What about, what about the customs? The response to this news is not celebration. It's opposition. But if the early church was to embrace the Great Commission given by Jesus to reach all the nations of the earth with the gospel, then some of the cultural practices and prejudices that opposed the mission to the Gentiles needed to go. So in our text, we see how God uses Peter to, to bring the church from resistance to the mission of the Gentile, to the Gentiles to a greater acceptance and obedience to the Great Commission. Now, we would be naive of us to think that similar issues don't get in the way of gospel mission today. Resistance can arise within a church, within individuals. And if we're not careful, it can neuter our effectiveness in the mission of the church. And so if we want to be a church that is fully committed to the Great Commission, wherever it leads us, then we will confront and weed out any resistance within us to the Great Commission by the examining power of the Spirit. And that's what this text does. From this story, we can glean some lessons on what a church looks like that is committed to the mission. And we want to be a church that is committed to the mission, no matter what. And so the first thing we see about a church that is committed to the mission is this. A church that is committed to the mission will let the Spirit lead the mission. Will let the Spirit lead the mission. To respond to the accusation that Peter had sullied himself by fellowshipping with unclean Gentiles, Peter explains how it wasn't his idea to go to the Gentiles, but it was the Spirit's. Look at verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Peter says, I, hey guys, I know what you were thinking. I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking the same thing first. I was thinking it too. I thought the same thing when those Gentiles showed up and said, come with me and, and meet this other Gentile. I was like, eh. But then I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, hey Peter, don't make a distinction between yourself and these people, go. Go with them. So Peter goes, and he preaches the gospel. Look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. That's key there, and I hope you've noted that little phrase, just as on us. Peter says, remember what happened to us in Acts 2? Do you remember? That glorious day when the Holy Spirit fell and tongues of fire happened and people started speaking in the languages that they were from and languages they couldn't have known. It happened again, but this time with them, with the Gentiles. There was no difference. Ben Witherington III, he's a commentator, comments here. For Peter, the decisive factor was that God had gave the same gift to them, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to those in the upper room 
when they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter recognized the work of the Spirit. He saw the Spirit of God and how it was moving and how it was leading and what the Spirit of God was doing. And against his own concerns of comfort or his own convictions about cleanliness, Peter followed. So this is the first lesson that we see. The church is going to be committed to the mission. If we want to be effective in the Great Commission as a church, we need to be able to decipher the work and leading of the Holy Spirit. And a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit will know the voice and will follow the leading of the Spirit as we seek to proclaim the gospel. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus. He says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A church that is filled with the Spirit will know what the will of God is. And so how? How do I know what the will of God is, you might ask? Well, the Scriptures. This is why we have been given the Holy Scriptures. They are God's perfect revealed will for His people. And listen, the Holy Spirit will never lead you away from the teachings of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will never inspire you to disobey what the Scripture says. That's not what's going to happen. Jesus says this in John 14, verse 26. Listen to this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit's job Jesus says, is to remind you and guide you in the very teachings of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to lead the church in the mission of Jesus. Let's say the elders and pastors got up here one week. We said, church, we had a prayer meeting this week, and we gathered, and we were praying and praying and praying, and we heard the Holy Spirit say, I don't want you to meet as a church anymore. You're done. You've had enough church. You, you Christians, you have too much church. We're going to not do church anymore. We're going to sell this building. And we're going to use the money to go out into the community on Sunday mornings and clean people's lawns. Right? Well, you would know that that's not the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit would inspire us to do because the Holy Spirit will never contradict the commands of Scriptures for us to gather as a church. We need to gather. We're commanded to gather. So the Holy Spirit would never say, yeah, forego your gatherings. But let's say the elders and pastors, let's say we got up here and we said, hey, we were at our elders retreat and we were studying the word of God and we were praying together and we heard the Holy Spirit say, I want you to go and start a work in cold water. There, there's a need there for gospel preaching churches. I want you to go and start a work in cold water. Well, that is exactly the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit would direct us to do, because that's what the Scriptures teach the church to do. The Holy Spirit leads the church of Christ in the mission of Christ. 
And this is what Peter says in verse 16. Did you notice that? And I remembered the word of the Lord. Ah. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit at work in the Gentiles aligned perfectly with what Jesus had said would happen. It agreed with the word of God. It it agreed with the revealed plan and purposes of God, and Peter recognized it. It might have taken him a moment, and it might take the church a moment to get it, but they would. So if the Holy Spirit leads us as a church to stretch the budget a little more, to plant churches, or if the Spirit leads you to extend yourself a little by inviting that gruff neighbor over to share the gospel, that's exactly the kind of thing the Holy Spirit would do. So a church on mission knows, listens to, and obeys and can recognize the voice of the Spirit in the mission. But secondly, a church that is committed to the mission will abandon prejudices that prevent the mission. A church that is committed to the mission will abandon prejudices that prevent the mission. Peter explains that the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles was completely in line with the words of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. It was undeniable that God was behind this. Look at verse 17 with me. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? The the early Jewish Christians had been used to a certain acceptable level of prejudice towards Gentiles. After all, the the law considered them unclean, their practices to be avoided. And throughout history, the Jews had been oppressed by Gentile nations. But what the law had intended to keep Israel from idolatry, to keep them from immorality, from the practices of the nations, the Jews had turned that into prejudice against the Gentiles. So through Peter's interaction with Cornelius, God was showing the early church that anybody who confessed Christ, that anybody who had the indwelling spirit as a guarantee of their belonging to God, was a child of God. They are now part of the church. And so the new radical truth was this. Anybody, regardless of their cultural background, their skin color, their previous religion, or any other marker, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a cornerstone. Any prejudice that leads us to deem certain people unworthy to hear the gospel, any prejudice that leads us to practically withhold the gospel from someone because of their background, their ethnicity, 
their sexual orientation, or anything like that, is to use the words of Peter, standing in the way of God. There's a famous clip on YouTube of Penn Gilead. He's a famous um, magician, and he's an atheist. And uh, in, in the video, he's talking about an encounter he had with a Christian who was trying to share the gospel with him after one of his shows. You can watch the video on YouTube. It's very interesting. Uh, just search Penn Juliet Evangelism Christians, and you'll, I'm sure it'll come up. It's an older clip, and some of you have probably seen it. And he reflects on the encounter that he had, and he, and he says this. He says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not worth really telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is way more important than that. For an atheist to say that is fascinating. It is an act of, dare I say, hatred to allow prejudice and intolerance to lead us to exclude people from hearing the gospel of Jesus. We would be found standing in God's way. You know, if we're all saved the same way, sinners saved by the amazing grace of Jesus, how could we possibly think of denying others the same gift that we have received by withholding the gospel from them? It's a cornerstone. We've got to ask ourselves this question. The question that Peter was forced to reflect on. Are there prejudices within us that are making us stand in the way of God? For example, are we prejudiced against outsiders, non-Aurelians? Do we keep newcomers at arm's length. We're friendly, but we're not welcoming. For some of us, perhaps prejudice has prevented us from reaching out to neighbors who moved from Toronto during COVID. Can we see how prejudice towards those people would prevent us from sharing the gospel with them, from building relationships? Or perhaps maybe for some of us, there is prejudice against people struggling with mental health, drug addiction, and homelessness. And we're like, ah, our nice downtown core has been overrun with homeless people and drug addicts. Are we bitter and annoyed? And does that cause us to forsake compassion and mercy? Does that actually, has that prevented us from sharing the gospel with somebody who's on the street? Maybe that's prevented us from supporting and resourcing local partners who are trying to minister to them, even though maybe they're doing it imperfectly. If we look at our LGBTQ plus neighbor, our, our Muslim neighbor, or our wealthy Torontonian neighbor, or our fill-in-the-blank neighbor, and we say 
they are unworthy of hearing the gospel. Hey, newsflash, you were unworthy. What basis could we have from disqualifying somebody from the gospel? Well, they're sexually immoral. So are you. Well, they're, they're greedy. So are you. Well, they're idolaters. So were you. So were all of us. And Jesus saved us. And Jesus rescued us. The point is this. Prejudice has no place in a church that is committed to the Great Commission because we understand that the same grace that saved us saves them. So a church that is committed to the mission will let the Spirit lead the mission, will abandon prejudices that prevent the mission, and thirdly, a church that is committed to the mission will shed cultural norms that hinder the mission. The Jewish Christians weren't only limited by prejudice, but they were also inhibited by the Jewish customs that deemed Gentiles unclean. And this is what actually leads and prompts the disagreement in verse 3. Why did you eat with unclean Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles? Now, Peter, up until this point, would have agreed with them. Remember, when the vision comes initially, what's Peter's response? In Acts 10, verse 14, he says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see, Peter was still thinking in terms of clean or unclean. Gentiles, like certain foods to Peter, would have caused him to be ritually unclean. But the vision, the voice of heaven, had completely changed Peter's perspective. He had realized that the vision wasn't just about food, it was about people. Derek Thomas, commenting on this text, says here, Peter came to appreciate that he had held to an utterly wrong understanding of God's intention for the Gentiles. Peter had held to a traditional understanding of things, one that had developed from a misunderstanding of Scripture. Yet he learned that the old traditions had been hindrances to the purposes of Almighty God. God had spoken. There are no more clean or unclean people. The groundwork of this had already been accomplished by Jesus back in Mark 7. If you remember, Jesus was constantly harassed by the Pharisees. Every single moment, he didn't follow all the little ritualistic commands about hand washing. They'd jump on him. Oh, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Oh, why are you eating with unclean people? Oh, why are you hanging out with prostitutes? Constantly. And so eventually, Jesus replies by saying this, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus had already fulfilled this. If external food was not what made someone unclean, then neither could being in the home of a Gentile and eating a shrimp cocktail. Think of it this way. The Jews had made a culture out of observing purity rituals. 
But now that culture was getting in the way of them fulfilling the great commission. So Peter says, if God gave the same gift to them, just like he gave it to us when we believed, how could I stand in the way? Now, we must be clear here. This is not talking about changing the truth of Scripture to reach people with the gospel. We might be tempted in this conversation around purity laws and to get turned around. The issue here is that Jewish customs around ritual purity were preventing the early church from sharing the gospel with certain people. Those customs kept Jews from defiling themselves with things that were making them ritually impure. So they were avoiding people. They were avoiding circumstances. But their obedience to their customs was getting in the way of what Jesus commanded them to do. See, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplished what the purity and ceremonial laws merely pointed to. Because true purity, true righteousness, true holiness comes not by avoiding human bodily fluids or not wearing mixed linens. It comes through Christ's imputed righteousness and his sanctifying presence dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit. These purity laws were fulfilled in Christ because Christ is now our purity. Christ is now our righteousness. He cleanses us by his Spirit from the inside out. So the content of the gospel never changes. We don't get to edit the message, but who can hear the gospel has? We aren't limited anymore by who we can hang out with because they will defile us. Derek Thomas makes this point clearly. This is not a justification of changes adopted for which there is no biblical support. Changes that reflect a softening of our commitment to Scripture. Not at all. It's rather a call to be willing to admit when we have been wrong, when we have maintained a view simply because it was traditional, but for which there isn't a shred of biblical support. Now, I know we may be tempted to think, well, Rob, like, we don't have cultural traditions that make obeying the Great Commission difficult. We don't have, we're Canadians, we're Gentiles. We don't have cultural norms that get in the way of us sharing the gospel. Really? Really? If we think that there are no cultural norms in Canada or even in Aurelia that can impede our ability to fulfill the Great Commission, we are seriously deceiving ourselves. Canadians are notoriously private. We like our safe backyards and tall fences. We like our privacy. We like being at home. We're homebodies. You don't think that that cultural norm gets in the way of you sharing the gospel? Gets in the way of you opening your life up to other people who need to hear about Jesus? We're generally wealthy, and we prioritize recreation and relaxation. We've got Netflix, Amazon, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, and all the sports we can watch. I wonder if we've ever considered how our comfort, our recreation, our priority of these things gets in the way of the Great Commission. 
gets in the way of making space? Or what about busyness? Oh, man, there is a cultural boastfulness in how busy we are. Oh, I worked 80 hours a week, brother. Oh, it's busy. It's busy. Wow, okay, that's cool. Have you thought maybe how, how busy you are, how proud you are of your busyness, how much you've packed your week with work doesn't get in the way of you sharing the gospel with making space for discipleship? Canadians are notoriously polite, right? We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to get into an awkward situation. God forbid we have social anxiety, so we don't want to get, say anything that's going to offend anybody. You don't think that gets in the way of sharing the gospel? of speaking truth. What our text shows us is any cultural tradition or norm that stands in the way of our ability to fulfill the Great Commission puts us in a position where we are now standing in the place, standing in the way, sorry, of God. So Cornerstone, what traditional, what cultural norm prevents you from sharing your faith? Does your views of alcohol prevent you from attending a barbecue where there might be an opportunity to share the gospel, but, oh, no, you won't show your face there? Does Sunday afternoon football, does that routine that you religiously follow, does that help or keep you from obeying the Great Commission? A church that is committed to the Great Commission will shed any cultural norm that hinders their complete commitment to the Great Commission. But finally, a church that is committed to the mission will give God glory in the mission. The reaction and the response from these zealous Jewish Christians, once Peter finishes telling this remarkable story, is clear in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorify God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. After hearing Peter's story, the response is undeniable. God is in this. And if indeed the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles like it fell on us, then salvation has come to the Gentiles. What are we to say? And so they rejoiced. They responded with awe and wonder. And they glorified God for what had happened. Now, make no mistake, this is not the end of this debate and discussion in the early church. This is just the start of it. We're going to hear more about this in Acts 15 when this conflict arises again. And this is going to be a common theme throughout a lot of the Apostle Paul's writings, especially as, you know, the book of Galatians. Paul's going to deal with this. In fact, we hear in Galatians that actually Peter himself backslides on this issue. And he becomes so afraid of these traditionalists in the church that he ends up not fellowshipping with Gentiles when they're around. And he falls into hypocrisy, and he even drags poor Barnabas with him into his, hypo- his, into his hypocrisy. So this isn't the end of the debate on this issue. But the early church here is now, as we see, beginning to accept, right, the gospel is not just for the Jew. It's not just for the Samaritan. It's not just for the eunuch. It's not even just for hostile Jews like Saul of Tarsus. It is even 
now for the Gentile. The diversity of a church that has shed prejudice, that has shed cultural norms for the sake of the gospel, that brings in all kinds of people is exactly what Jesus promised would happen. In John 10, Jesus says that He is the good shepherd, and the only way to the Father is through Him. He is the gate to the sheepfold. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 16 of John 10. And I have other sheep that are not of this flock. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There will be a day, Jesus says, that other sheep, sheep that aren't part of this fold, sheep that don't look like you, that they will be brought in. They're going to hear my voice. They're going to know the voice of the Spirit. And they will come. And there will be one flock. And there will be one shepherd. This is the mystery of, of the gospel that the apostle, the apostle Paul will speak of in Ephesians 3. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. As the church, as we fulfill the mission, as we are led by the Spirit to share the gospel, rejecting prejudices, Abandoning cultural practices and norms that get in the way. And as the sheep of Christ are brought in and are transformed by the power of God and the power of the gospel of Jesus, the manifold wisdom of God is broadcast into the universe. So a church that is committed to the Great Commission is a church of great joy and a church that gives God much glory. When congregates are led by the Spirit to share Christ with whomever Christ leads them to, God gets the glory. When a once prejudiced Christian shares the gospel with his neighbor, someone that he wouldn't have wanted to before, God gets the glory. When a drug addict is welcomed in to the church and finds a home, finds compassion, and finds healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God gets the glory. And when Christians from every tribe and nation gather in unity to worship the good shepherd who saved them from pride and prejudice and sin, God gets glory. That is a church that God is going to use powerfully in the Great Commission. Oh, may that be true of us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word that examines our hearts and seeks to draw out anything that is not of you, seeks to expose anything that is not of you, and to reject it for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we love your word. And we want to proclaim it boldly 
and clearly, even the parts that our culture will, will shrink away at and get angry at. We want to proclaim it all. But Lord, far be it from us to stand in the way, to withhold the gospel from people who desperately need it. Lord, would you break down anything in our lives, any, any, any rules or traditions that are not of you that stand in the way of the gospel? Would you break them down that you might use us that one day, Lord, we might see churches full, people from all tribes and all nations and all backgrounds completely conformed to the image of Jesus, giving him praise and giving him glory. Oh, Lord, would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.